Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Steinhardt Aquarium has taken different forms over its hundred years. It once hosted dolphins and even a great white shark. A TV show, Science in Action, was filmed there for years. But the role of an aquarium is a bit different now. Our oceans are in crisis and institutions like the Steinhardt are an important player in conservation research. So today, we celebrate 100 years of the aquarium taking your memories in, and we'll also look forward to the next chapters in the storied San Francisco spot now built into the wondrous California Academy of Sciences in Golden Gate Park. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. When I sat down to write about the Steinhardt Aquarium, I pulled out my phone, started going through the photographs and videos of my children wandering around the place. In one, February 15th, 2016, my then three-year-old stares up, eyes filled with wonder, hands clasped. I could look at that face all day. In another from a couple years later, I've got both my kids, and they're sitting together at the base of the biggest tank, just spotting things. A unicorn fish! A unicorn fish, Daddy! Wow! A unicorn fish. Mm. Even before they could speak, their stubby little fingers would point up at the fish, at the corals, at the divers, and you know they were saying, look, really look. And as we consider the Steinhardt's legacy and the future of the ocean, I do wonder if these moments spark a little conservationist in everyone who glimpses these undersea worlds with their own eyes. I mean, if that's what's down there, shouldn't we protect it? We're joined this morning by Bart Shepard, Senior Director of the Steinhardt Aquarium at the California Academy of Sciences. Welcome. Thank you. And Rebecca Kim, Head Librarian of the California Academy of Sciences. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks. Um, Bart, you know, there are not a lot of things in a city like San Francisco that are actually 100 years old, a uh, place so focused on reinvention and the new thing. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of the Steinhardt. Yeah, it's, it's really a fascinating story. And to dig into it, as we've been doing um, in the past six, eight months, has been really fun. So, you know, it really starts with two brothers. And, and 
Ignaz and Sigmund Steinhardt, who were Bavarian merchants. They immigrated to California in the 1800s. They started selling goods to miners out in Placerville and, and made some money doing that. They ended up coming to San Francisco, getting involved in um, selling goods, being bankers, and became very successful. And at some point, they decided that San Francisco, and, and we don't really understand why they they chose an aquarium, but at some point they decided that San Francisco needed an aquarium to be a world-class city being mm. rebuilt after the earthquake. It needed to have a, an aquarium. I love it. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the Sutro, Adolf Sutro thought San Francisco needed some things to be a world-class city, including a library, which is now housed at San Francisco State. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a little, we have a few cuts during the show from a Bay Area science TV show that was filmed in the 1950s and 60s at the Steinhardt Aquarium called Science in Action. Um, just to set the tone here, here's uh, one cut on the origins of the Steinhardt. About 1918, Mr. Ignat Steinhardt, a prosperous merchant in the city of San Francisco, decided that Western North America needed a major aquarium. He approached Dr. Barton Warren Everman, who was then director of the California Academy of Sciences, and proposed that he, Steinhardt, should make funds available to construct this aquarium for the city and that the academy would then operate it. Opening day was September 23, 1923, and in the 42 years since then, more than 56 million visitors have viewed the fishes and other animals. There's been a request I do the rest of the show in that voice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not sure I can, but you just know exactly what that person looks like just from the... From the um, so um, tell, tell us a little bit about how the Steinhardt initially kind of built its collection out, you know, in that era of, um, you know, aquariums. Well, it, you know, they, they didn't have some of the, the luxuries that we have these days, such as, you know, global air travel and, <laughs> uh, and cargo planes and the, the web. And so uh, some of the more interesting ways that we obtained animals in the, the early days were working directly with benefactors, often who had a sailboat. So there was a man, um, Charles Templeton Crocker, uh, who was the grandson of one of our country's railroad magnets. And he actually was the first person to circumnavigate the globe in a sailboat from a West Coast port, which he did in the late 20s. And when he came back to San Francisco, he had that boat sort of stripped and rebuilt as a mobile research laboratory. And he proceeded to do a bunch of expeditions in the 30s all through the South Pacific and the Eastern Pacific with members from the California Academy of Scientists, scientists from the American Museum of Natural History, and a man by the name of Robert Lanier, who was an assistant superintendent of Steinhardt Aquarium. And in the 30s, they brought back more than 300 fish from the Galapagos Islands. And that, I'm sure, was the first time that Galapagos fishes had ever been displayed in a public aquarium. Oh, wow. We're talking about the Steinhardt Aquarium located in the California Academy of Sciences. Turns 100 this fall, joined by Bart Shepard, Senior Director of the Aquarium, and Rebecca Kim, Head Librarian at California Academy of Sciences. We want to hear from you. We know people have had a relationship with this aquarium who live in the Bay Area for many, many years. And we'd love your favorite memories of the Steinhardt Aquarium from when you were a kid, from when you were an adult, from when you brought your kids. Uh, You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also send your memories you know, beautifully compose a recollection of 1975 or whatever to forum at org. You can also find us on Twitter, on threads, on Instagram. You can go on the Discord or KQED forum, of course. Um, Rebecca Kim, there is one organism 
at the aquarium that I feel like gets a disproportionate amount of attention, but for good reason, Methuselah, this 92-year-old lungfish. Um, tell me tell me the story of this fish, because it seems kind of wild that you've been able to keep it alive in captivity for so long. Uh, yeah. Um, I Okay, sorry. Um, yes, Methuselah does get a lot of attention, but that kind of has ebbed and flowed in history. I think when she first came, there was a um, you know, the press were attracted, um, and then she kind of went under the radar for a while. But more recently, she's gotten covered by CNN, the New York Times, the Chronicle. Um, and I am more about the history, so I can just talk about how yeah. she got here. Yeah, but how'd um, she get there? I don't know how to keep them alive. That's more a Bart. <laughs> That's more Bart. Um, <laughs> good fortune. Um, good fortune, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, Bart, you know, is that a long time for a lungfish, or are there just a lot of 100 year old lungfish swimming around the ocean, you know, and we don't even know? No, well, we don't know how old lungfish live in, in the wild, right? Because if it's longer than 100 years, no one person is ever going to have tracked one right. from birth to, to <laughs> yeah. death, right? So uh, what we've done is we partnered with some research scientists in Australia that were uh, pioneering a new technique for aging fish using DNA. And they mm. were looking at uh, fish. They, they have many fish that are much younger, and they know the, the age of those. And so they can sort of calibrate that end of the technique but they didn't have any fish that were really, really old. Uh, and so us and a couple other public aquariums in the United States sent samples in to kind of calibrate the far end of their technique. Uh-huh. And, yeah, we actually think she's about 93 years old, plus or minus. Um, there's a little bit of, of error there that they we're still trying to figure out. Um, but, you know, been here for a very long time and, and still a, a happy and treasured member of our yeah. living collection. It's just amazing to me that, you know, you could have had – your, you know, uh, your parents or even your grandparents go see that fish as a child, <laughs> and then you could go see that fish now. It's just, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, of course, you know, trees live w- way, way longer than that, but this is like a an animal moving around. Um, so can we kind of go through a little bit, Rebecca Kim, about just kind of like the the step by step of how Steinhardt Aquarium moved into its current location. Like, where did it start and when did it get rebuilt? And... Well, the aquarium actually opened 70 years after the academy's founding. So um, the academy is 170 years old. Um, and the reason why the academy and the aquarium are in the park is because the 1906 um, earthquake and fire in San Francisco destroyed the building that was on Market Street. Um, and so this made the academy think about moving to the park to be protected, but also to build um, like a bigger, better, you know, sort of rebuild in the wake of this destruction. Um, So the very first building they build is um, a natural history museum, North American Hall in 1917. And then they build the aquarium in 1923. Um, And so these two, and they're in the park, it was a bit there is a bit of controversy about where the aquarium should have ended up. Um, hmm. It there was some ideas a bit in the marina was a spot where it could be, um, and there's a lot of like if you go into the 1920s press coverage, you'll see a lot of like back and forth about where um, it should live. Which but, I'm so uh, glad you've done. Thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> I know. Thank you. A hundred years ago, I mean, that's definitely um, Ignaz Steinhardt. Like, really, was a proponent of it being in the park and being um, sort of managed by the academy. Wow. 
Um, so, yeah, and that's how it is here today. It is an amazing place to be, the park, but also to have the academy have, like, there's so many resources at the academy. Like, there's an aquarium, a natural history museum, mm-hmm. a planetarium. There's so many things. Um, and it's kind of amazing. It all kind of works all well together. Bart, um, you also got a chance to kind of build two aquariums in your career, right? Because you had to build like the temporary one downtown. Then you had to, you know, build this, you know, beautiful one in the California Academy of Sciences building. Which one was harder? Like (laughs) retrofitting a downtown building to hold all these tanks or like doing the new custom one that would have all these corals that we'll talk about later? Well, that's that's a, a loaded question. I I think um, personally and mentally, uh, for me, the hardest one was the first one, the move to Howard Street, uh, just because it was a lot of change. And, you know, I was having a kid at the same time. So there was a lot going on in my life. You know, my older daughter was born right at that time when we moved to Howard Street. Um, the Of course, challenging in terms of the animals and the acquisition and the systems and everything, the new building, which is, you know, 15 years old now last week. Um, was much more challenging, just the scope of that. We have 170 exhibits, uh, living animal exhibits, and then another 120 enclosures behind the scenes. So there's almost 300 habitats or enclosures for animals in that building. Wow. I mean, um, in the downtown building, it kind of, could a regular office building just accommodate all that water? Like, how was it able? I, I just yeah, it, it was a um, it was a warehouse for the Emporium, which was a department store, and so the floors were built to be able to drive a forklift mm. on them, and so it did have some you know sort of structural strength <laughs> that it needed. Uh, it was it was an interesting place because none of the floors were level either. They all sort of <laughs> sloped. And so trying to put aquariums in there, that was really challenging. You're giving me new ideas for all this empty commercial real estate, yeah, yeah. you know? <laughs> we, we've discovered something. You can just be Aquarium City. And um, I can remember coming in one day and, you know, you would leave like a 55-gallon drum of uh, water, like heating and aerating overnight to do a water change on a tank. And you'd come in in the morning and it'd be in a completely different place because at some point it decided to roll across the unlevel floor in the middle of the night. Oh my God. We're talking about memories of the Steinhardt Aquarium as well as its future as part of you know, the ocean conservation. Our oceans are really in trouble. Uh, the Steinhardt Aquarium turned 100 this fall. We're joined by Bart Shepard, Senior Director, and Rebecca Kim, Head Librarian. We're going to get to some of your calls on your favorite memories of the Steinhardt Aquarium. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786, or you can email forum kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the history of the Steinhardt Aquarium and the future of our oceans. We're joined by Bart Shepard, Senior Director of the Steinhardt Aquarium, and Rebecca Kim, Head Librarian of the California Academy of Sciences. I promise we will get to depressing things about the state of our oceans, but I want to stay with fun animals for just a little bit longer here. Um, there, uh, one of our listeners uh, writes in to say, uh, Moo on Discord actually writes in, I love bringing friends, both young and not so young, to see Claude, the albino alligator. The little ones also love seeing the African penguins. Um, tell us a little bit, uh, Rebecca Kim, about the, the history of like why there might be an alligator or these penguins in the, in the place. Well, um, the alligators have always been part of the aquarium. Um, there's always been a swamp, so we see Claude now. There was some version of that, like a much bigger version of that in the um, old Steinhardt Aquarium. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was, I you know, I... You know, I'm actually not sure about the intentionality of all the animals that were placed early on, other than maybe we had access to them and that, and there was a design for them. Um, I think later on over time, I mean, there's been some great animals. So, yes, Claude is amazing. Um, the penguins are also amazing. But there's also been marine mammals that have lived at the aquarium. Like, um, I don't know if people remember Butterball, the manatee. Yes. Yes. Um, so... And I think it was maybe just to, like, I think it is to bring awe and, like, make people care about the natural world. Mm-hmm. This would have been, like, the only place you might have been able to, even now, to see some of these animals. And by caring about them or about, like, want, like you know, being fascinated by them, you might care about the natural world and may want to maybe conserve mm-hmm. um be a conservationist, like a be, yeah, I think that is the plan. Um, Alex is like uh, Alexis to be yeah. make baby conservationists and then like <laughs> yeah, have them spread the word. I mean, how did Butterball get to the <laughs> museum? Uh, on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> I and mean, a coach like, seat apparently. <laughs> yeah, there's a great photo of Earl Harold, who was the person speaking in that clip, um, who's like holding baby Butterball. On a plane. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Bart's done a bunch of research. You can talk also it, about Butterball. It, we he, was, um, he was purchased at a uh, fish market, um, essentially, in Colombia, near Letitia, Colombia, in 1967. There was a, a trustee of the academy, a man by the name of Wilson Meyer, who was traveling in South America. And they came across this young manatee that had been harpooned at a fish market and decided, let's buy this thing and send it back to Earl Harold at Steinhardt Aquarium. And that's what they did. And so for 17 years, Butterball lived at Steinhardt Aquarium, 1967 to 1984. Wow. Um, he was the subject of two master's theses, two uh, doctoral dissertations. There's six research papers that oh were published God. on him. And, you know, countless, you know, millions of people, um, 20, 25 million people probably came and saw Butterball over that period of time. Wow. Um, there is another famous animal. We're going to play another cut from um, Science in Action, which is this 1950s television show that was filmed at the Steinhardt. Um, this story is so good. Let's hear it. Alvin the albino bullfrog. The most famous of the world's amphibian albinos is a bullfrog named Alvin, who for many months lived in his display tank at Steinhardt. One day, some unknown villain kidnapped Alvin leaving behind in the tank a single normal but very lonely bullfrog. Alvin's new home was said to be the bathtub in the frog napper's house. After a year, they needed the bathtub for other purposes and so decided to return Alvin to Steinhardt. 
Ace News reporter Art Hoppy was selected as intermediary and sworn to secrecy about the identity of the kidnappers. He then returned Alvin, who should really have been known as Alvetta, to his or her original home. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> How good is that uh, clip? Yeah, fantastic. fantastic. I mean, producer Jennifer, and thank you so much for pulling that clip. <laughs> it is so f- And there's so many funny things about it. First of all, the world's most famous uh, mm. amphibian albino. You know, really, <laughs> really slicing the uh, sausage there. Uh, Ace reporter Art Copy. Like, could that possibly be a real name? <laughs> Art and Copy is mm-hmm. the Ace reporter's name. And that they left another bullfrog, and that one doesn't even get a name. <laughs> um, and you know, there there's a there are a lot of stories like that. I I love the time Earl Harold again. That was that was him speaking. Um, you know, they they specialized in albinos. The Steinhardt Aquarium. <laughs> he he claimed we specialized in albinos, and so they had albino trout. They had albino bullfrogs. They had all these albino animals. And I love that we have carried that on with Claude, the albino alligator. You know, yeah. I love that we that we were living with that tradition even to this day. You know, you did say claim. Does that mean like you you feel like it? You didn't actually specialize. <laughs> I, I think it was a, 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 lovely, a happy coincidence. Gim- lovely gimmick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's go to the phones. Uh, first, uh, Suna. Welcome. Suna. Hi. Yeah. Oh, hey, Welcome. Suna Mullins. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I grew up in San Francisco, and as a child, my mom would take me and my brother to the San Francisco Zoo and also the aquarium in Golden Gate Park. Um, they were great free free places, so we went a lot. And my brother was probably four, and I was about two and a half, and he really wanted to see the double-headed snake. So my mom <laughs> tells a story about turning her back to show him the, the, the double-headed snake. Um, and in the old aquarium, the alligator pit was kind of in the center of where the snakes were. And she said she turned around, and I had climbed over the railing. Um, and she was able to grab me just in time. Uh, and when she got her breath back and said, what were you doing? I said, oh, I wanted to pet the baby alligators. Oh. So, um, I've since taken my kids to the um, aquarium, or I'm sorry, to the, the Academy of Sciences, and I'm very grateful for the enclosures that are at the um, by Claude. <laughs> Suna, that's a great story. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you did not get a chance to pet the baby alligators. <laughs> We're glad, glad you're still with us. Yeah. I, I could live to tell the tale. Yeah. Thanks so much. I that's love your right. show. Have a good day. Oh, hey. Thank you, Suna. Appreciate that. Um, let's, uh, let's bring in another caller. Uh, Berang um, in Berkeley. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, great show. Thank you. Um, I... Uh, uh, I take my kids uh, to the Academy of Science and the Aquarium. We're uh, annual members. Uh, we have membership, uh, and we take them. But my and my kids love it. Uh, they love the, the sea life, and occasionally they get scared by a scuba diver divers uh, cleaning the <laughs> aquarium. But <laughs> but my funniest uh, story about it is actually an adult night with my wife. Uh, we were at, uh, I think it's on Thursday nights, and uh, one time we were there, and uh, I had a few drinks, and I was pointing out the, all the colorful uh, fish and how bright and vibrant they were to my wife, and uh, I was just super amazed. And my wife, after a few times, she said, you know, we see these all the times when we're here with our kids. What what stands out to you so much now that you're pointing it out? And I said, I don't know. They just seem extra bright and vibrant 
And uh, after a few minutes, we discovered that I've been drinking a lot of absinthe uh, at the bar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was uh, hallucinating. Yeah, wow. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and they served it there. I mean, they did back then. I don't know if they do or not still. But, uh, yeah, and then we had a good laugh about it, and uh, she had to drive home. But uh, that was my... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Baring's right. wife. So that uh, right. Baring is also still here with us. Um, we appreciate that. Um, thanks so much. Um, I love the the scuba right. divers are such a great. Um, they're they're such a great part of kind of the conservation effort too, right? As we kind of learn what it is that even the best ways of keeping these animals alive in this kind of uh, environment. Yeah. Yeah. The our dive team is a uh, is a, one of the most uh, successful and and sort of ambitious scientific dive teams in the world. We have, um, you know, there's five, six sort of full-time dive officers that work with us, and, and we do more than 2,000 dives a year. Only about 75% of those are in the building. So we're also out actually in the world um, exploring, uh, collecting uh, specimens for scientific study, collecting specimens for the aquarium, and uh, yeah, that's a that's a big part of, of our work. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Um, Bob uh, writes in to say, uh, my first visit was in 1957 at the age of eight on a school field trip. I still have vivid memories of the aquarium and science hall. The experience nourished an interest in science and animals that has lasted 66 years. Um, so doing, doing what you hope. Yeah, um, that's the goal, right? That's suppose, the goal yeah. is to connect people with the natural world and, and really help sort of foster a sense of stewardship for the world around us. Yeah. I want to bring in um, Lauren in Moraga. Welcome, Lauren. Hi. Good morning. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to the Steinhardt Aquarium with my family in the early 90s as a young child for a private event. You know, my uncle worked at Fish and Game, and he'd been part of a, a book, and they were celebrating this book. Uh, you know, what was really memorable is my sister and I, they took us behind the scenes to the dolphin exhibit that was still <laughs> there uh, at the time. And we just had this amazing, magical moment where this dolphin was just blowing bubbles at my sister and I. And she was probably maybe five, and I was about eight. And just as children, to be the only persons in this exhibit, sole focus of this you know, highly intelligent marine mammal was just absolutely fascinating. And it, it's really left a lasting impression on both my sister and I for the rest of our lives. Uh, I am so jealous right now. <laughs> um, uh, Lauren, that's an amazing experience. Um, thanks for thanks for sharing that with us. I, um, I The dolphins are were a complicated part of the aquarium's legacy, right? I mean, as I understand the, the story, Bart, you know, they were there, their tank was like kind of small, I mean, it was small relative <laughs> mm -hmm. to like even like your kind of SeaWorld standards. And it feels like when the dolphins were transferred to, at least as again, as I understand it, SeaWorld San Antonio, that kind of signaled a change maybe in how the aquarium was seeing itself. Do you think that's right? I think that's absolutely right. That dolphin enclosure, so again, Earl Harold, who we keep coming <laughs> back to, was a, a huge fan of mammals. He studied mammals, he researched mammals, and over the course of his tenure, we had a great many different types of both freshwater and marine mammals. Mm -hmm. And in 1963, which was the last major renovation of Steinhardt Aquarium before we rebuilt it in 2008, uh, he had installed about a 60,000-gallon tank that was set up for dolphins. And, yeah, it was essentially a swimming pool. You know, it was not, not quite mm. the size that we would want these days. And, you know, they had multiple species of dolphins in there. They had um, harbor seals, 
for about 20 years, maybe 30 years. And uh, in the early, mid-90s, we really started to think about, you know, we needed to, to find a, a better place for them. And I think it was 1995 mm-hmm. that they ended up moving out. Yeah. I also want to say, like, when Earl Harold first brought the dolphins, we did not know a lot about them or their behavior or how smart they were, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and so, and this would be, again, like, the first time someone would have seen a dolphin. Like, you couldn't easily see them in the 60s. Um And yes, he did have a soft spot for marine mammals in general and some regular mammals. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, so this was, and it is an evolution of um, the aquarium and how, like thinking about care of animals and like we used to just want to keep them alive, but now we really do think about their well-being, total well-being. And like Bart can talk more about that, but like that's been a shift over time. Yeah, but why don't we talk a little bit about that? I do, I do feel like you can see, it, you know, the mission changing as you kind of go back through the museum's historical material. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the beginning, you know, it was really about these exotic creatures and, and showcasing the sort of menagerie of things that people would never have a chance to see, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about alligators and albino bullfrog, you know, manatee, all of these things that very few people would ever have the opportunity to see in the wild. And over time, you know, that, that mission has shifted. And, and, and now, you know, we're, we have a, like a cradle-to-grave approach uh, to, to animal care. So, we, you know, we bring animals in that, that can only – we only bring them in if they can live their full life, you know, and, and be happy and healthy for their entire life within, within our building. And there's a, you know, a constant um, attention to their well-being and their welfare, uh, and the, the care of them is, is – you know, paramount and, and non-negotiable. So what do we do? Because, you know, like hearing Lauren's story, I mean, I can totally see that being a life-altering experience to come up close and personal with a dolphin. And, I mean, I feel like I had one of those experiences at the Monterey uh, Aquarium with a giant Pacific octopus, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that I feel like was staring through my soul, you know? I mean, it was incredible. And you all have an octopus, very, very, uh, like a, a geriatric octopus, as I understand it. Um, but like we now know so much more about how smart those animals are. How, how do you, you know, as we, as the understanding and the science underlying these things changes, what changes do you have to make in the aquarium to say like, well, maybe this octopus needs more from us Mm -hmm. or, or maybe not. Maybe at this stage of life, that octopus would just like to be left alone at the (laughs) bottom of the tank, you know? Well, I think you, you got right to it there. I mean, it's, we, we give the animals choice and control. Uh, you know, they're, they're in control of, of what is happening. So we have uh, behavioral training programs and enrichment programs for every animal. And, and what that means is that the, the biologist will work with them. So in the case of an octopus, we might present the food in a puzzle and, you know, give the animal some choice uh, in terms of, you know, a challenge in terms of trying to find how to get the food out of the puzzle. And we do training sessions. We'll bring the octopus up to the surface. We can train the octopus to get into a basket so it can be easily weighed so we don't have to, you know, sort of get in there and grab the thing. It'll go right in on its own uh, cord into a basket. So, you know, you you, you work with the animals on, on a daily basis with these uh, formal programs, written out, planned, executed mm-hmm. programs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Before we get to uh, a break, there are 17 questions about the two-headed snake. Uh, uh, Just uh, for example, uh, Zoe writes, if you went to the Steinhardt in the 80s, you probably remember the two-headed snake. That was my favorite as a kid. Also remember the seahorse railings that seems to still be in use in the new building. Tell us about the snake. Well, the the snake um, apparently was found by a school teacher in Napa in the late 60s, 1967, something like that, and donated to Steinhardt Aquarium and then lived in Steinhardt Aquarium for quite some time. Uh, And so, yeah, a lot of people, you know, again, these are the things that we always get asked about. Butterball the manatee, the two-headed snake, um, the fish roundabout. Mm. Those are the things that we always get Oh, wait, we haven't talked about the fish. Okay, so the fish roundabout, right, was kind of uh, aquarium in the round um, so that the fish could kind of swim in a circle, as I understand it. There's something similar at Monterey Aquarium, I think, now. Um, how come it didn't make it into the new building um, when it was rebuilt? Okay, that that's a, a question we get a lot. Um, you know, the people have this. You brought it up. Bart. You brought <laughs> it up. People have this very romantic attraction to the to the fish roundabout, and and I think there's really there's two main reasons why we don't have that right now. now the first is really thematic. When we were uh, rebuilding the academy in the in 2008, the focus was on biodiversity and biodiversity hotspots showing full ecosystems, the rainforest, the Philippine coral reef, mm. uh, and, sh- and talking about areas where the academy has done um, you know, significant research and, and built partnerships with community to, to impact conservation. And so the fish roundabout, you know, it was kind of a bare concrete tank with some f- open ocean fishes and really not an area where that told those stories. Um, so the context piece of it was that. And then the other is was just the, the sort of physical logistics of it. That tank was built in the mid-1970s. It opened in 77. And, uh, you know, the building regulations were very different then. The ADA accessibility was very different then. And you would wind up this very steep ramp to get into the center of this incredible ring tank, this sort of carousel of fish that swam around you. And in order to replicate that, and meet the modern building codes, um, it would have needed a much, much, much bigger space. Mm. Mm. Okay. All right. That's a that's a solid, very practical answer. <laughs> Sorry, everyone who wanted it. Um, <laughs> one, one comment here. John writes, um, I was married in a park in Land's End. Our reception dinner was hosted among the spectacular fish tanks, and our wedding cake cutting was up at the top of the amazing fish roundabout. The marriage lasted 15 years. The memories last a lifetime. Thanks, John. Uh, (laughs) That's a good one. That is a good one. We're talking about the Steinhardt Aquarium located in the California Academy of Sciences. It turned 100 this fall. Next segment, we're going to look ahead to ocean conservation and the the aquarium's role in it. We're joined by Bart Shepard, Senior Director of the Steinhardt Aquarium, and Rebecca Kim, Head Librarian. Can I take some more of your calls, too, about your favorite memories? The number is 866-733-6786 or forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Steinhardt Aquarium, which uh, turned 100 this fall, joined by the senior director, Bart Shepard, and the head librarian at the California Academy of Sciences, which, of course, hosts the Steinhardt Aquarium, Rebecca Kim. Um, One listener writes in to say, I have many fond memories of going to the aquarium with my three sons. Hearing Bart talk about the fish being brought from the Galapagos, it begs the question, should we keep absconding with marine life from around the world? As we know better, shouldn't we do better? I'm reminded of Totike and the other orcas stolen from near Whidbey Island. These issues need to be part of the conversation. Um, Bart, talk to me about collecting of animals now. How has the process changed? What's different? I mean, as I understand it, there are still animals that are, that are collected from the oceans and, and brought to the aquarium. So talk to me about, uh, about that. No, I, I think that's absolutely right, and and it is part of the conversation. I mean, we, um, you know, we we talk about this all the time, and and you know, we uh, have a, a a process by which we go through that. It's called an institutional collection plan, and it's a, a written formal process that we go through that guides us in terms of which animals we might acquire, right? And so, um, there are decisions based around um, animals from the wild. Um, you know that that use all these different criteria, and uh, one of them, of course, is the the status of of those animals in the wild, and and so we're you know clearly not going to go collect an, animals that are extinct or endangered in the wild unless it is part of a conservation breeding program. Um, just following up on on this a, a little bit, I mean, what role do you think the Steinhardt has to play? in sort of ocean conservation more generally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not just, you know, having a reasonable, um, you know, collection plan, but also trying to address, you know, what what is a real crisis in the ocean? No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'll give you a couple of examples of the kind of work that, that we do. And so if we think about, you know, things that are near and dear to my heart, which is the coral reefs, um, you know, they're in tremendous decline all around the world. And, you know, we hear this on the news all the time. We have this massive... Uh, heating event in Florida, you know, all the corals are bleaching in the Florida Keys. You know, it's just one sort of problem after another. Well, we have, you know, the world's largest and deepest indoor coral reef, the Philippine Coral Reef Exhibit. And, you know, it's it's unfathomable for us to, like, just simply go out and collect a thousand square feet of a reef somewhere and plop it down in the middle of a building in mm-hmm. Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. So we went about building that collection in an entirely different way. We acquired small cuttings from other zoos and aquariums. We grow those cuttings out into larger corals. We can propagate them and grow them on our own. And that's the sort of population sustainability piece, right? Where do we get our animals from? How can we do that in a way that minimizes the impact on the wild? But that's not enough. We also need to be turning our attention to how do we actually regenerate reefs in the wild and make the world a better place? And so we have an initiative we call Hope for Reefs. And one of the projects that's involved in that is a coral regeneration laboratory where, you know, we take my team, who are these incredibly talented and passionate people that are really ta- adept at keeping corals alive in glass boxes, right? Mm-hmm. And they can 
um, initiate and, and mimic the natural environment so much that they can get the corals to spawn. We can provide the, the environmental cues that the corals need to produce sperm and eggs and actually spawn in an aquaria. And that you partner that with research scientists, like we have Dr. Rebecca Albright and Dr. Alora Lopez-Nandam at the Cal Academy, and they have questions that they want to answer about what can we do to help coral populations in the wild respond to this changing planet. Mm-hmm. And you put those two things together, and it's an incredibly powerful tool to really advance the science of coral reef restoration and, and planting mm-hmm. corals back out on the reefs that can actually survive in the, the conditions that they're facing right now. You know, uh, another listener writes in to say, I grew up in Campbell in the South Bay and remember my first visit to Steinhardt as an eight-year-old on a field trip. We stood in awe of the electric eel, the seals, and the various undersea oddities on display. I wonder how the curators will balance the opportunity to have people fall in love with ocean life with the sad fact that the oceans are dying. How do you enlighten people without just bumming them out? And I just want to go straight to the most bummer question that I can think of. On, on this part, which is, is it possible that like in my lifetime, in your lifetime, that we'll only be able to see corals at places like the Steinhardt? You know, I, I refuse to believe that that's possible. I do think that, um, you know, reefs are, are, are struggling, right? They're suffering um, for sure. But there are places that give us hope. And, and I've been to a number of places like Palau um, in the South Pacific, which has these incredibly healthy, beautiful reefs and a, and a very strong sense of protection uh, from the national government there. Um, to the Maldives, where we have a partnership, where they're really looking at investing and in making sure that their reefs stay healthy. And and so I do think that there there are enough people out there trying to make a difference. And I do think that there are spaces, places in the, in the in the wild that are are somewhat resilient or at least stronger uh, than the ones that you see. You know that are facing the biggest challenges. Yeah. Um, let's bring in um, another couple memories here. Uh, Douglas in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for taking your call. This is a six degrees of separation call. I um, uh, had an ophthalmologist. His name was or is, if, if you kind of believe in that stuff, uh, Dr. Leroy Michelle, And he worked at the Steinhardt before they made the move. He also worked for NASA. The interesting story about Dr. Michelle was that uh, Steinhardt brought him in to help with a shark that uh, had rubbed against the inside of one of the tanks. I had rubbed an eye away and down to the socket. Dr. Michelle, as I understand the story, as he told me, was brought in and replaced the shark's eye with a prosthetic eye and uh, was very well known and well regarded as an ophthalmologic surgeon. And he also created and did tests for NASA, uh, for the ISS, and for various flights. And that's just my little wow. piece of Steinhardt Aquarium history, other than I grew up going, and all the stories are wonderful to hear on the radio. <laughs> and if, yeah. if, if they could speak to a little bit of Dr. Leroy Michelle and his history, um, if, if they know of him, that would be wonderful. Because I just think the story is so cool. Yeah. it's a, It also, um, you know, Barton Becker reminds me of... You know, you have to take care of these animals in so many different ways, including their eye health. Um, <laughs> so do you know about Dr. Leroy Michelle? And, and if not, maybe you can just talk about, you know, some of the other kind of specialist medicine that you have to do. I don't 
No, specifically, I'd have to do a little bit more, but I feel like maybe it's the same person. John McCosker, who was the director after Earl Harrell, did do some shark eye contact lenses. Like I read this account where one of the sharks (laughs) did not like the overhead lights in the roundabout. And so even though they dimmed them, they it would just keep it wasn't doing well. So they like try to make these like sunglass contact lenses <laughs> with an, it's like this crazy story. I, it didn't work. Um, but like um, and so maybe it is the same person. I'd have to like double check my I would have to like do a little. I research. mean, yeah. this this is going to yield one, some weird photos <laughs> yeah. from the archive. Yeah. I cannot wait. And you must email them. <laughs> yeah, um, I can. Yeah, there's a lot out there, actually. So, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I also just wanted to note for folks um, who were listening very closely to the Alvin the Bullfrog um, story. I said the reporter's name was Art Copy. That's what I heard. It's Art Hoppy. But I want everyone to know that in my comic noir novel set at the Steinhardt Aquarium in the future, that reporter will be called Art Copy. I'm sorry. Um, Let's uh, bring in uh, Susan in San Francisco. Hi. Good morning. What a wonderful program. Um, Our parents, um, who were artists, would take us to the aquarium, the old one, and then, you know, later the new one, all the time. And they would have a kid's, like, art area where you could look at all the incredible creatures and you could make a creature out of clay or different art supplies. Mm. And so I made one, and I, I won a ribbon, I don't know, like first prize <laughs> ribbon or something. And I think that might have been the spark. And then I became an artist. No um, way. And oh, I that's now have great. a career as an artist. Um, but Steinhardt is just so... Oh, iconic and wonderful, and we still go, and we love the nighttime events. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you Thanks. so much, uh, Susan. I love that. Best Seal Award uh, goes <laughs> to Susan in San Francisco. Um, let's go to uh, Pat in Daly City. Welcome. Hey, hi. This is another kind of shark kid story. My daughter um, was a shy kid, and I was always um, looking for things for her to do during the summer. And... Um, you had a pre a program like an internship program for youth, and so they gave her sharks, and she would she had to make a big paper mache shark, <laughs> and write um, interesting facts which she thought were interesting, and stand in the lobby, and say hi, do you like sharks? And then all these kids would say yes, we love sharks, or we're scared of them. And um, then she would tell some shark stories. And we were old surfers from the beach, so we were all interested in it too. <laughs> anyway, it was a great program, and um, you know, I ended up working with kids and took many, many free field field trips there. And um, wow. you know, we still love the the aquarium. I love that. I mean, by the way, that is the greatest kid job ever. You're <laughs> just like, yeah. there's a certain kind of kid who all they want to do is tell you shark facts. And I feel like if you could get that job, you would just be the happiest child um, on earth. Pat, I'm so glad that uh, your child got a chance to do that. Do you still have the like volunteer programs for kids or some of these like more internship opportunities? Yeah, we have a high school intern program called Careers in Science. We also have... Te- um, is that uh, available to a 41-year-old radio host? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and you get to still share science facts on the public floor. That is part of their job. Um, they get they get to like work the public floor and show people. I, I haven't seen a, sh- a paper mache shark in a while, but maybe. And sometimes mm-hmm. in the summer, they do like a little 
they'll have a dance that's like science themed. Um, so it is kind of fun. Um, and it is a year round program. I mean, you should try, Alexis. You could you could try. <laughs> Maybe I could get in. It's <laughs> a competitive ac- application. It but, is. You know, right. We'll put in a good word for you. Um, here's a, uh, a little like um, a request for a tip. Um, from one field trip to, a listener writes, from one field trip to Cal Academy, I remember getting an activity sheet that said to sit in front of the biggest viewing windows and observe where feeding or cleaning or other fish behaviors were going on in the tank. But there was always so much going on, and I never had enough patience to try and figure this out. Any tips for where in the tank I should focus or specific things I can look for next time I go? Wow. I think it probably refers to the Philippine coral reef. That's our biggest window, and and there is a lot going on in there. You know, we have more than a, about a hundred species of fish. There's more than a thousand fish in there. Um, I think your the clip you played of of your child was talking about the unicorn tag. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in that, and and yes, it's it's hard to to pick one fish out and focus on that fish. I think that's probably the point of the worksheet is try and follow one fish and see what that fish does. Well, if you have kids of a particular age, it's actually not that hard because they just start shouting Nemo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, Nemo or Dory. Or Dory. Yeah. And then you end up following those two fish. Um, there's uh, a bunch of, uh, of great memories, uh, come, and I love these. I'll re- read just a couple of them here. Um, Amy writes in, My earliest memories were going to the Hall of Sciences and making eye contact with all the life forms there. My sister and I would, quote, imagine or pretend they had complex thoughts, emotions, rich inner lives and relationships, all things we now know to be true. Along some dimensions. Um, Greg writes, being born in 1989, I was among the last generations of the Bay Area to remember the aquarium and academy before the move. From the time I was four to around 10 years old, I spent at least one day a week at the place I called the Fish Museum. I have memories of exhibits such as the Anthropology Hall, the exhibit for Ray Troll's Planet Ocean, and one of the most influential places in my upbringing, the dioramas, lengthy information plaques, and immense font of wonder that was the entirety of the Life Through Time exhibit. Mm. Yeah, thanks for that, Greg. Um, the in the current um, iteration of the aquarium, like what do you hear from people about the thing that they kind of remember most? Right, like when when people come to the aquarium and they they come through. Why I asked my own ten year old now the thing that they remembered most, um, and they said the rays. You know, there's the, the area yeah, with the yeah, rays, yeah. in particular because there's like the huge ones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was what they remembered. I, yeah, I think um, one of the things, I mean, the fish roundabout we already talked about, but one of the things that we also have a lot of people remember are the, the seahorse railing that goes around the alligator swamp where Claude lives. And that's an original architectural detail from the 1923 building. We were able to save about half of those, and then we had some new ones made and, and rebuilt that. Mm-hmm. You'll notice, though, now, and we had one caller who said she actually climbed over the railing. Um, you know, we we had to adjust it over the years because of the changes in building code. And, and one of those things was to make it taller. And another one was to put a uh, – there's a strip of bronze that goes between the seahorse tails because for years, little kids would get their heads stuck between those seahorses. They would kind of lean their head through, uh, try and get a closer look at the alligator, and then when they would go to pull their head back out, it would be locked in place. Oh, God. So the security oh, guards at the time actually kept, like, the biggest jug of petroleum jelly that they could buy. Oh, no. And whenever the call would come in that, you know, another kid's got their head caught in the railing, they would run down there and put a little swap on each side of the ears and work the kid's head out. Wow. Wow. 
Um, here's a really specific question for you, Rebecca. <clears throat> Natasha writes in to say, there were a number of Solon and Schemmel tiles in the Steinhardt Aquarium. My understanding is that these were protected artwork, but some were destroyed in the demolition. I see some have survived and are in the Cal Academy. What's the story about those, and where can the surviving tiles be found? Well, um, yes, they uh, yes they came down during the renovation. Some of them were saved. Some of them were dispersed through with staff. Some of them stayed in the um, like got put back in the building. Um, I actually don't know. I think they were auctioned. Yeah. Oh, so maybe, there were the yeah. so the Salon and Schimmel tiles. Um, they were made down in San Jose, uh, and you know they show up in a lot of different architecture around the city. And we have these beautiful fish tiles. I mean, they're they're gorgeous. Uh, that were that were part of the original installation, 1923. So every one of those was cut out and salvaged out of the building in 2004 before we tore it down, including some that were actually behind walls that had been <laughs> built uh, in the interim time between 23 and um, 2004. Mm. And uh, we decided to save the fish tiles. Uh, the, they were a single fish sort of square tile. Um, uh, these sort of green um, tiles and these blue tiles. We reused the fish tiles and the blue tiles and the green tiles in the building. And then there were some that were like a, a wave pattern and other sort of floral patterns and decorative patterns that went on the stair risers and around the trim around doors. And those those were all auctioned off. Hmm. There you go. There's your answer. Um, so I need to ask you about one other thing. Methuselah has a name. But you have two other, this is Methuselah, the 93, approximately 93-year-old longfish that lives at the museum, the oldest fish in, under care, aquarium care. But you also have small and medium. You have two other fish <laughs> which you have never named. I think you should give them a name right now. Small and medium. <laughs> do, they have, do they have unofficial names? Uh, the, you know, there's one. So we, we had four lungfish in the old building, um, and one of them is on loan to another institution, and then we have... Okay, there's Loney. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> we have small and medium. One of those, the three other ones, was actually named after Herb Kane. Uh, and so we, we, we have documentation of that, but honestly, I couldn't tell you which one of the, the non-Methuselah lungfish is, is Herb Kane. I mean, one of them should definitely be named Art Copy. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, a last uh, couple of uh, memories here. You know, um, a listener writes, I started going to the Steinhardt Aquarium in about 1952 with my grandma. It was a standard part of every visit with her. We especially loved the alligator. My great auntie Annette was selling tickets right at the entrance for years. Then I took my kids in the early 80s. Definitely one of the most important landmarks in San Francisco. And another listener, Laura, writes in to say, you know, just kind of on the, the topic of what this place can really do for, for people. Laura writes, my recent favorite memory is taking my toddler grandnephew last week to see the eel garden and watch the rays prior to his admission to UCSF for brain cancer treatment. He'll be at UCSF a lot. Thank you for the happy moments during a really difficult time. Thank you for that, Laura. Thanks for sharing that. The Steinhardt Aquarium turned 100 this fall. Of course, it's in the California Academy of Sciences in Golden Gate Park. We've been joined by Senior Director of the Steinhardt, Bart Shepard. Thanks so much for joining us, Bart. Thanks. It was a real pleasure. We've also been joined by Head Librarian of the California Academy of Sciences, Rebecca Kim. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. And of course, we're going out to Octopus Garden. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. In an octopus's garden in the shade Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.